Prestige Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome back to the pod Lissandro Claudio. Lissandro is a assistant professor in the Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. And he is here to begin a series on the history of the Philippines. So Lissandro, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Danny. Hi there. So probably we're, we're going to really start in the 19th century, but before we began the pod, um, I asked Lissandro if maybe he could give us a sense of what the quote-unquote Philippines or the islands that would eventually comprise the Philippines um, were like before the era of Spanish colonialism. So Lissandro, if you wouldn't mind starting there, and then we'll really just get going. So the greatest writer, Filipino writer of all time, as far as, con- as I'm concerned, Nick Joaquin, says that there was no Philippines prior to the 16th century. And there was no Philippine culture prior to the 16th century because there was no Philippines. So remember, the Philippines is a, an amalgamation of, our, some, uh, of around 7,000 7, islands that used to be uh, the Spanish Las Islas Filipinas. So the contours of um, the kind of geopolity that you see now were defined by the Spaniards. So even though a lot of people like to talk about pre-Hispanic Filipino culture, in many ways, that's kind of an, an anachronism, like a, a projection of contemporary nationalism to the past. So what were those islands like? Who, who do we think populated them? Did they have a relationship with each other? Or was it a series of kind of single units that didn't interact much? I mean, it, it's best to think of these islands as part of a broader maritime Southeast Asian culture. So these islands would have been similar to the cultures of, say, contemporary Malaysia or contemporary Indonesia. They were speaking languages that were broadly defined as Austronesian, for instance, and they were a part of um, a kind of globalized Southeast Asia in the 16th century. Remember that even prior to the arrival of European powers, much of Southeast Asia was already trading with, with the West, particularly using the using the spice trade. So they were already interacting with the West, but they did not define themselves, or they were never defined as a kind of com- as, a, as a kind of single polity as you do today. So there was some travel between them, but it wasn't there wasn't a coherent sense of peoplehood. Yeah, there wasn't a coherent sense of peoplehood. In fact, many of the datus or the leaders of the various polities that were in what what we now consider contemporary Philippines, saw each other as competitors to each other. And of course, these cultures um, could interact with each other, could trade with each other, but they never saw themselves as a kind of nation. And of course, what what I want to do in this discussion is really to trace the origins of perhaps contemporary Filipino nationalism, which will then allow us to think about the contemporary Philippine state in a more rigorous fashion. Great. So why don't we move on just briefly to the era of Spanish colonialism and and how did that begin and what did that look like? So Spanish colonialism began, began, as I mentioned, in the 16th century. And um, in the 16th century, what they did, the most important thing they did was that they set up an entrepot, a trading entrepot in Manila. 
Um, and many people say that this is actually the beginning of globalization, if you think about it, because if you define globalization as all continents of the world simultaneously trading with each other, this was the first time that the Americas and the Asias were connected. So prior to that, of course, Asia and Europe were already connected by the Silk Road. There was already an Atlantic trade. But when the Manila-Acapulco Galleon trade opened in the 16th century, that was the first um, trading route established between the Americas and Spanish fit, and Asia. So effectively, because of these galleons that were coming out of Manila, you had various goods, primarily from China, making their way to Acapulco and then from there into the Spanish Americas. So the Philippines has always been a, a, a hotbed for cosmopolitanism. So let's just drill down on that for a second. What was the major trade between Alcapulco and the Philippines? And when you say Philippines was the center of cosmopolitanism, do you mean that there were peoples that were moving and there's a formation of a type of trans-Pacific culture? Or is that too yeah, much? Yeah, I, You know, I mean, like, there were Filipinos in California, for instance, even prior to the establishment of the United States in California, for instance, when it was still Mexican territory. And remember that the Philippines was governed out of Mexico. And Manila was a bustling entrepot at this point. You had, of course, you had various Spaniards, you had various people from, uh, from Latin America. And then you also, of course, had Chinese who were part of that trade. Um, um, most of the trade was, of course, Chinese goods. Manila, Manila was the kind of way station for all of those goods that were entering Mexico. Um, and if you look at Mexico until today, you'll find many people there still have, particularly in places like Acapulco, still have Filipino last names or last names that are Austronesian. For instance, if you look at the phone book, you might find, uh, you know, a last name like Mangahas, for example, which is not a Hispanic last name. It's a kind of, it's an Austronesian Filipino last name, for instance. So what was the major things that were going back and forth between the Philippines and Mexico? I mean, it was everything coming out of the Chinese market, you know, um, silk, pottery, for instance. Um, there was also there was also the spice trade obviously also continued. Um, so this was uh, this this was robust. And, and I think it lasted, if I'm not mistaken, until the early 18th century, or the late 17th century. And so what did the Spanish governance of the Philippines look like? Because like you said, these are peoples that are not necessarily, um, they don't necessarily imagine themselves as, as one person, but I imagine that the earliest glimmers of what would become Filipino nationalism were found in the era of colonization. So what was the form of Spanish governance and how did people respond and what was the form of conquest? All those, you know, colonial stories. I mean, first and foremost, the contours of what we know to be the Philippines now were defined by the Spaniards. So the kind of map that you see, you know, if you look at the map of the Philippines, it looks like this dude who's carrying a sword. Or if you want to be kind of like slightly green minded about it, it looks like a dude who's taking a piss. Um, so that kind of map of the Philippines was defined by Spain, and it was defined by the kind of geopolitical strategy of Spain. For instance, you know, why is it that the Philippines extends into what we now call what we now call Muslim Mindanao today? It was because sometime in the 18th to 19th century, the Spaniards decided to take control of that area, which had not been, which had prior to that not been part of Spain of Spanish Philippines. Why is it, for example, that 
you know, you that the Philippines does not extend into, let's say, Taiwan. It's because the Spaniards never ex- never extended their control beyond, um, you know, the, the Batanes group of islands, which is just north of Luzon. So that those kind of geographical con- contingencies were defined by the Spaniards. Another important thing that needs to be discussed is, of course, relig- religion. A lot of Filipinos say that we are the only majority Catholic country in Asia. Not sure if that is a good thing or a bad thing, but many Filipinos celebrate that, um, you know, it's kind of annoying because sometimes Filipinos define themselves as Catholic to the exclusion, of course, of minorities like Muslims. And we can discuss that problem later on. But definitely the, the Philippines was Christianized. And so what you have in the Philippines is a kind of lowland Christian culture. And that, in, in effect, is the dominant culture of the Philippines that you have today. And those who are excluded from the Filipino geobody or the Filipino identity are usually those who do not belong to that lowland um, Christian culture. Like, for example, indigenous people in the Cordillera region in the north, Moros or Muslims in the south, um, and uh, Chinese Filipinos, for example, who, who, who sit uncomfortably relative to that dominant Hispanic Christian culture. So I'm by far most familiar with uh, Spanish colonization of Mexico. And, and that was a, a colonization defined by brutality. Um, there was a lot of uh, death from disease. How does that compare with what happened in the Philippines, if you wouldn't mind my asking? Were there similar um, questions of disease? How did the yeah, conquest you know, Do you know, um, there was just a book that came out that essentially challenged this narrative that the colonization of the Philippines was not as violent as what happened in Mexico. Um, so there seems to be evidence that what happened, that, that you did get a kind of decline in the population of the Philippines in the 16th century, uh, not as significant as the decline of, pop, of, the, of the population that you see in Mexico. Um, so the, a lot of this is new research, but you know, despite the fact that there was a decline in population, I don't think that the colonization of the Philippines was as brutal as the colonization of the Americas. Um, for one thing, you know, you don't get the kind of conquistador culture that you see in South America. Most of the Spanish officials in the Philippines were priests, um, friar orders in particular. So like the, 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 the Dominicans. And, 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 and Spain was actually not really able to exert significant um, military authority outside places like, you know, Manila and Cebu. So in the far-flung provinces, for example, the only vestige of the Spanish state there was your parish priest. So from the beginning of Spanish imperialism in the Philippines, you have what is essentially a very weak state. Um, in fact, a lot of political scientists trace the beginnings of the Philippine weak state, the kind of weakness of Spanish authority in the Philippines. So if it wasn't exercise, it, it could exercise, for example, kind of religious hegemony. It could, to a certain extent, through various monopolies like a tobacco monopoly or even the galleon trade, which I mentioned a while ago, kind of economic authority at given points. But most of the time, this was a kind of really weak state that um, that that and, and the main goal of the state was essentially to Christianize the country. And to that extent, of course, it was successful. Alessandra, uh, can we? Talk just a bit more about religion. Um, obviously, Islam arrived in what became the Southern Philippines a couple of centuries before the Spaniards arrived. And so um, I'm curious as to what religions or what faith kind of practices did Christianity displace when the Spaniards came? I mean, Islam has survived on some level to the mm-hmm. present day, but what was what were some of the other? Was it was it mostly indigenous? Was it 
um, you know, kind of Hindu inflected or what, what, what kind of, you know, was there before the, the Spaniards arrived? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it in terms of long durée, the kind of Judeo-Christian culture that encompasses both Christianity and Islam arrived in the Philippines, you know, let's uh, at the earliest from the 14th century until until roughly the 16th century. So we think of, if you look at it on using a long durée lens, then, you know, Christianity doesn't really displace Islam. Maybe Christianity comes in you know, a century after Islam, but it's not actually, they're not a, Christianity is not really displacing Islam. These are kind of modern, if you like, modern religions that are arriving during this period of intense trade from in the from roughly the you know 15th century until the 16th century. What what these Judeo-Christian um, religions are somewhat displacing, or if you like, mixing with or amalgamating with, is a kind of are kind of animistic religions um, in the Philippines. So the kind of belief that let's say. You know, forests are imbued with spirits, or that are, or that nature has a spiritual quality to it. That is a kind of um, local animistic culture that you see not just in the Philippines, but also more broadly in island Southeast Asia. How do those beliefs kind of, uh, the way you put it, I think is good, uh, amalgamate? How do they amalgamate to this new-ish Judeo-Christian? You know, and I'm I'm sure the experience is different mm-hmm. with uh, Islam versus. Christianity, but just kind of broadly speaking, what are the the manifestations of that? I mean, so until now, for example, in the Philippines, you have the very Christianized people who, when they pass, let's say, uh, when they step on a mound on the floor, say, "Excuse me," because of uh, kind of oh, because of the belief that the the mound on the floor is a site where gnomes might live. Um, so, despite the Christianization of the Philippines, there are still vestigial traces of that kind of animistic culture. So uh, let's bring things forward a bit and can we kind of talk about how these uh, different islands and different cultures or different peoples started under Spanish rule to to develop uh, a more a, a common identity what were uh, you know was this an opposition to colonial rule or was it sparked by colonial rule in in different ways like was this you know was Spain trying to kind of create a, a unified uh, entity here, or what? What were the, some of the sort of the, the trends that went into that? So similar to the Spanish Americas, by the 18th century and the 19th century, you had a uh, a, pop- a segment of the population that was European but identified with the patria or the post-colonial emergent nation. These were called Creoles. Um, Benedict Anderson, the theories of nationalism, for instance, traces nationalism to the history of Creoles. And you get a similar phenomenon in the Philippines. The first person in the early 19th century to call himself a Filipino was a man named Luis Rodriguez Varela. And he was a Creole. In other words, he was a Spaniard born in the Philippines. And he called himself the Conde Filipino or the Filipino Count. So you had these Creoles who, you know, were who were who were Spaniards but started identifying with the Philippines and they were the first persons to people to articulate a kind of proto-Filipino nationalism now this is weird to a couple of people here's an, an 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 analogy because the United States is not exempt from this Creole history remember that the, like like somebody like George Washington was a European born in the colonies Hamilton was a European born in the colonies and they were the first pe- people to call themselves you know 
citizens of the United States or, or who began to articulate U.S. nationalism. So it's similar in the Philippines. It wasn't the indigenous Filipinos, what they called Indios, who first identified as Filipinos. It was actually these Europeans born in the Philippines who started to, who began to define what Filipino was. But sometime, sometime in the 19th century, this category of Filipinos started to become very much more expansive so that by the middle of the 19th century, you had, you know, people, uh, you know, Indios, natives of the Philippines, who began to identify with that label Filipino as well. And of course, the most famous Filipino nationalist in, in this regard was the propagandist and novelist Jose Rizal. And my favorite quote from him is he said, you know, um, sometime in the 19, in, in the 1890s, he says, um, some of us are of Malayan descent. Some of us are of Chinese descent. Some of us are of Sp Creole Spanish descent. But we all call ourselves Filipino. So from the very beginning of Filipino nationalism, it, it's already a kind of post-racial nationalism. That's what I like about it. You know, unlike, I'm not going to mention countries, but unlike many, uh, unlike other nations in Southeast Asia, our kind of earliest form of nationalism was already multi-ethnic. So, Lissandro, I imagine there was um, significant resistance to Spanish colonialism. And what's interesting, though, is that, that I imagine in that in that resistance, you get the formations of a common identity across these many islands. So, could we talk about what is generally pointed to as the earliest forms of resistance, how they proceeded over time, and what was their character? So, even prior to the emergence of Filipino nationalism, you had certain groups that wished wish to challenge the Spanish state. But most of these were kind of localized revolts. In other words, they were not nationalist revolts. In fact, in a way, you can think of them as anti-nationalist revolts because they were localities who wanted to break away from Spanish Philippines. Um, but the, fir the, the, the first steerings of Philippine nationalism actually happen when the Spanish Empire starts to fall apart. So, for example, early in the 19th century, you, you get Mexican independence and the Philippines was actually governed by Mexico. So that introduced a kind of legal conundrum whereby if Mexico is no longer part of Spain and the Philippines is part of Mexico, then is the Philippines still a part of Spain? So you get, for example, in the 1830s, a revolt called the Novales Revolt, where you had a Mexican Creole in the Philippines by the name of Andres Novales, who proclaimed himself emperor of the Philippines because he was a Mexican soldier and Mexican, Mexican official. And in many ways, that is the first anti-Spanish revolt in the history of the Philippines that conceives of itself as a kind of proto-nationalist movement that wants independent that wants Philippine independence from Spain qua Philippines. Right? Um, and then you have in the, this tumultuous 19th century, of course, the various Carlist wars that are happening in Spain. And also, you know, at, at one point, the emergence of a liberal constitution in the form of the Cadiz constitution, those have reverber reverberations as well in the Philippines, where you have various Filipinos, Creole, but also Indio, it's kind of this multicultural coalition that I'm talking about, starting to assert that, you know, if liberal rights are being, are, are being demanded for in Spain, that we should demand for those liberal rights as well in the Philippines. By the middle of the 19th century, you have groups of Filipinos in Spain who are lobbying for the Philippines to become a province of Spain and no longer just a colony entitled to rights similar to um, the, rights, uh, the rights that provinces obtained in constitutions like the Cadiz Constitution, for instance. Because many of those demands um, were not recognized or fell flat, 
by the by the 1890s you already had an independence movement in the philippines now the father of the independence movement is really jose rizal who in the beginning advocated for um, rights under the spanish crown he wanted the representation in the cortes for example and he, as i mentioned he wanted the philippines to be recognized as a province he also wanted the secularization of education in the philippines but all those demands fell on deaf ears so by the 1890s, Rizal is already a kind of um, independent, uh, is, is, is already pro-independence. And from his writings emerges the, the, the revolutionary group called the Katipunan, or the Association roughly, which roughly translated, which uh, begins, which initiates the Philippine Revolution of 1896, the first um, pro-independence nationalist revolution in all of Asia. But the last pro-independence uh, movement in the Spanish in 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 the Spanish world, right? So, so it's a kind of weird revolution if you think about it, because if you think about the age of revolutions, you know, like the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and also the various revolutions in in Latin America, it's kind of part of that because it happens in the 19th century, but it's in the tail end of that. But it's also not a part of the 20th century anti-colonial revolutions like the Vietnamese revolution, for instance, or the Indonesian revolution. So it's a, it's a re revolution stuck in between those two revolutionary moments. That's why I think it's very interesting. Can we talk about the Philippines in the 19th century in the context of, of uh, Asia? So what was going on in Asia and how did the Philippines fit into its regional history? You know, historiogra historiographically, I must admit that it's only now that we're thinking about the Philippines in the 19th century as belonging to Asian currents, for instance. Um, most of the time, that story is told as, you know, part of the Spanish world. So most of the time in mainstream history textbooks, the Philippine Revolution is the last revolution within the Spanish world. But actually, during this period, um, there's been recent work, for example, a colleague of mine, Nicole Cunhin Aboitis, she's looking at the influence of the major restoration in the imagination of Philippine revo revolutionaries. Um, she's also looking at them demanding uh, or asking for support from the Japanese government, believing that the Japanese would not just um, help them fight Spain, but eventually that the Japanese would help them fight America. Sun Yat-sen, of course, was very sympathetic to the Philippine Revolution, and he was very close to a Filipino revolutionary by the name of Mariano Ponce, and it was through Ponce's interactions with Sun that events in the Philippines were written up in various periodicals in China at the time. What was the import of that? What happened with that? So I think, um, and again, the research here is very preliminary, but a lot of Asians, uh, you know, um, were inspired by the example of the Philippines because, as I said, this was the first nationalist revolution in Asia. So definitely the Chinese nationalists were reading up about it. And many Indonesian nationalists would, of course, read, read, read about the Philippine Revolution as well. I mean, until now, for instance, you see many Indonesians with the first name Rizal. And that, that can be traced back to kind of admiration that many Indonesians had for the Philippine national hero as a Rizal. So how did Filipino culture and the Filipino economy develop over the course of Spanish colonialism throughout the 19th century? So before we get to like the late hmm. 19th century, I think it'll make sense to set the stage so people understand the role of the Philippines in the larger Spanish imperial imagination, in the, Spar uh, in the larger Spanish empire itself. So what was going on? How did people begin to identify each other as, as belonging to a common people and having a common sense of identity? Well, the 19th century, ironically, was a period of great wealth in the Philippines. 
So you had during this period, the kind of secular depreciation of the peso, which coincided with the secular depreciation of silver. As a result, you had the a, a boom in the export industry. And so you had the uh, increasing export of cash crops. And that is why many of the nationalists from this period were sent to Spain on the dime of the, on the dime of their families that were becoming wealthy as a result of these cash crops. Um, and it was during this period of extreme wealth that Filipinos started to think we don't really need Spain. Because I mentioned it, it was a really weak Spanish government at this period. In fact, although the Spaniards nominally controlled the government, and although they nominally, uh, although they controlled schooling, for example, the, the, the economy was really defined by British capital. So all across the country, you were seeing the, the opening of various British and American trading houses. So that even prior to the arrival of the Americans in Manila, for example, the drivers of horse-drawn, there's evidence that the drivers of horse-drawn carriages in Manila were already speaking English because of the intensity of, you know, what scholars might refer to as Anglo-Chinese capital in, 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 in the Philippines during this period. So there was, I think, there was a kind of contradiction here because Filipinos were like increasingly wealthy and yet Spain was a weakening power. And it was that tension that I think conditioned a lot of Filipinos to think we don't really need Spain anymore. How did Filipinos identify each other, you know, people who 500 years ago might not have been part of the same culture? I want to get a sense of, it's so interesting because there's so many islands and so many single units. Like, how did that process come to be? be that people began to imagine themselves as part of the same community. I imagine it's not linked to the print capitalism only. <laughs> oh, but, but yeah, what certainly was linked to print capitalism. So in the 19th century, you did have newspapers that articulated Filipino nationalism. For example, the most important one is called La, Sol- La Solidaridad, which was actually an, ex- an expatriate newspaper published in um, in Madrid and in Barcelona, but also trickled into the Philippines. Then, of course, you had the two important novels of Rizal, the first one being No Limit Angere, Touch Me Not, sometimes also translated as The Social Cancer, and then the second one, the more incendiary one called El Filibusterismo, or The Subversive. And so these novels started to started to in, in, infuse a kind of radical nationalism into the body politic. You know, having said that, this was not necessarily a very cohesive nationalism. You know, for example, when the, when the early Republican government of Emilio Aguinaldo sent emissaries to Muslim Mindanao, they were rejected there in Muslim Mindanao because Muslims did not view themselves as part of the Philippines during this period. And yet it could also be more expansive because there is evidence that there were Filipino nationalists in, in Guam, for example, because Guam was at one point part of the Archdiocese of Cebu. So, so it was definitely in flux, but definitely people were already articulating an idea of kind of common Filipinoness during this period. And yes, unfortunately, print capitalism has something to do with it. What were some of the markers of that common Filipinoness before the era of the revolution? Well, I would say, you know, my, 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 kind, of, my kind of research here is, is actually the, the main marker that people have neglected is liberalism. Because a kind of demand from Spain were, were a couple of liberal demands. If you look at the writings of Rizal, he would have hap- he would have been happy to be a Spaniard had the Philippines been afforded certain rights like freedom of religion, freedom of the press. Unfortunately, it was a kind of very theocratic society, and it was in opposition to that 
theocratic, illiberal society that Philippine nationalism articulated itself. So I would say that Philippine nationalism was actually birthed in liberalism. So let's talk a bit more about that. How did liberalism come to the Philippines? What was the particular version of liberalism that becomes dominant? How does it relate to these broader strands? Well, you know, of course, Filipinos in the 19th century are reading about the various liberal revolutions. They're reading about the Spanish Revolution. They're, they're sorry, the French Revolution. They're also reading about the American Revolution. They're reading about the Carlist Wars in Spain, which essentially pit revolution um, liberals against conservatives or reactionaries. They're very inspired by the Cadiz Constitution. The Cadiz Constitution, a failed constitution, but nevertheless, it was a symbol for liberalism that resonated across Europe, Latin America, but also in the Philippines. So those were some of the sources of liberalism. And then, of course, by the late 19th century, you had these various Filipinos who were studying in Spain, like Rizal, for example, who were interacting with many anti-Carlists and also, um, you know, big names in Spanish republicanism. They were And they were traveling across Europe. They were traveling across Spain. They were traveling across France as well. And they were bringing back a lot of that liberalism into the Philippines, um, such that, you know, by, by, by the 1890s, you had a really robust liberal culture in Manila and also in other, you know, major cities like Cebu. What is the primary political economy of the Philippines now? Is it an agricultural society? Is it, is it industrializing in the 19th century? Like, I want to get a sense of what are the major industries there. So obviously, it's a trading hub. It's always mm. been a trading hub. But what on the uh, is there anything on the islands uh, themselves that we need to understand? Because I'm curious about the development of capitalism there as well. I mean, it's still heavily agri- agricultural. But there, there are some moves towards industrialization in the 1890s. But it wasn't because of the Spanish state, which had grown, as I mentioned a while ago, increasingly weak. So, for example, the, some of the first sugar centrals, sugar processing mills in central Visayas during this period were being developed by British capital. There were multiple American and British trading houses in the Philippines, in, in Manila and also in Cebu. If you look at the banking system in the Philippines in the late 19th century, most of the, the, the major banks were kind of Anglo-Chinese banks already, like the like HSBC. The Banco Nacional Filipino, which was nominally the Filipino-Spanish bank, was, was always borderline insolvent during the late 19th century. So if you look at the political economy during this period, it is really defined by British, hegemon- British capitalist hegemony. That's the economy while the, the political system is nominally controlled by Spain. So in that sense, the Philippines is already part of a, a kind of regionalization, British-driven regionalization in Asia during this period. So economically, it's linked to Hong Kong. It's linked to the Strait Settlements, right? It's part of that, that British imperium of capital in the late 19th century. And how does that sort of, it's really interesting because what, what you have, is, as I'm understanding it, is you have a sort of British form of political economy coming to the Philippines with a kind of weakening Spanish form of governance. And I imagine mm-hmm. there's also Asian currents that people are going to be discovering more and more as the years go on. So I'm, I'm just curious, how does that, it, it seems like that would result in a particular form of liberalism, that it wouldn't be the same liberalism you see in like Benito Juarez or you see in, in, in Abraham Lincoln, you know, in the mid-19th century, mid-19th century figures. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Like what is, when, pe- when, you, when you call people liberal, what do you actually mean by that? What is their particular ideological formation that they're advocating? 
I mean, the liberalism of the spirit is not necessarily so. So here we need to disentangle the kind of political liberalism from the economic liberalism. There was some free market British style liberalism during this period because, of course, they saw the kind of ex- example of the British Imperium. But really, the liberalism I'm talking about is a reaction to Spanish political currents. So. Mostly, the liberalism of the spirit was a kind of anti-clerical, secular liberalism. Um, in terms of economic policy, um, Filipinos really did not have a clearly articulate, uh, articulated vision for what the economic future would be like, and this is this is something that only gets defined, I think, you know, as a reaction to American rule. Um, but during the time of Rizal, if you read his works, for example, the economy is not something he really talks about too much. And when he talks about it, the economy, it's usually just simply a defense of kind of standard defense of property rights against the Spanish government, for instance. So basically, just to be clear, the, the liberalism is really an anti-Catholic church. And so is that because the church owns so much property? Like, I'm trying to get a sense of, of, of that liberalism. Yeah, uh, I mean the church owned a lot of property. That's why, if that's why you know um, the defense of property rights that Rizal advocates, for example, is a defense of cap- property rights relative to a kind of avaricious Catholic church that owned much of the property that generated a lot of the wealth during this period. So I said, I said that there was a booming export industry during this period. The cash crops that were being sold were being sold by planters or landowners, quasi-landowners who were called inquilinos. And inquilinos in the Philippines were rich families that occupied friar lands and planted in those friar lands and participated in the export economy. So, you know, a family like Rizal's family, for example, they were an inquilino family and they wanted political autonomy, but they also wanted autonomy from the friars who owned their land. What what was the individual Filipino did, did in in the nineteenth century? Did that person have rights? Is there male suffrage? Um, I actually have no idea. So, could you give a sense of the the form of politics that's going on? No, um, there is there is no male suffrage, and, and in fact, there 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 was there were things like forced labor, for instance, for for instance, um, a policy called polo y servicio, so forced labor. Um, so it was not, and and then of course you had a kind of police called the Guardia Civil that by all accounts was very strict, very draconian, very authoritarian during this period. So how did an ordinary Filipino express her or his political ideas? Is there just, they just had no no access to political power whatsoever? And then what did the liberals say about this in the 19th century? So there were, in the 19th century, already millenarian movements. Uh, So quasi-Catholic movements um, that talked about kind of the end of the, the, the world and the end of the universe as we know it, where they talk about uh, you know things like an impending kingdom of heaven, which would be kind of more socialistic than the present, where equality would reign. And the revolutionary movement, the liberal movement, always had a kind of strange relationship with these millenarian movements, because of course they did not come from the Enlightenment heritage that the revolutionaries were forwarding. Of course, some of these millenarian movements could interact with the liberals and the revolutionary movement, and there is some evidence that some millenarian movements joined the Philippine Revolution of 1896, but that was always an uneasy relationship. So what is the coalition 
or the coalitions that are forming right before the revolution? The coalition that's that's forming right prior to the revolution is really a combination of the various groups that start to identify themselves as Filipino. As I mentioned a while ago, Filipino is begins as a term exclusively used to describe Creoles or Europeans born in the Philippines. By the late 19th century, you had various groups identifying with that term. And so that that is the major coalition, this kind of ethnic coalition that you see in the Philippines. And, and, and you know, if we were, compa- we, again, if we were to compare the U.S. and the Philippines, by the time you get to the point of the revolution, it's no longer just a Creole-led revolution, like the United States, which is a Creole-led revolution through and through. Uh, so, Lissandro, as we get toward the eve of the revolution, I think we'll we'll end there and, and kind of pick up with the revolution uh, next time. Uh, but I want to talk about the 1872 uprising, and in particular, that there were, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the this colonial authorities wound up executing three priests as a result of this uprising. And I'm curious, you know, we had talked about the liberalism in the Philippines being a sort of anti-clerical or anti-kind of establishment church movement. What's happening, um, you know, before we get into the uprising itself, maybe, can you talk a little bit about what, what's happening in terms of kind of religion at the local kind of grassroots level um, and and what Catholic priests and Catholic kind of church uh, folks are, are doing in this period. Because there's always, there's always a distinction between like what the bishops are, are talking about or what the like official church is talking about and, and what's happening at the, at the like parish level. Exactly. So here's the bit of, a bit of an irony, Derek. The Philippine Revolution ostensibly has a significant anti-clerical element to it, but it also has a significant Catholic element to it, and both are existing at the same time. In fact, there were many Filipino priests who fought with the revolutionary armies. In fact, there's a book called The Revolutionary Clergy. So a part of the revolution was also articulated in Catholic terms. And the reason for that is the Catholic Church was a place, or what was a, was, was a kind of realm in which nationalist fights were fought. And the perfect example of that in, is 1872. So in 1872, you had three Filipino priests. And by Filipino at this time, you already mean Creoles, you mean um, Mestizos, you mean Indios. So three Filipino priests, um, by the name of, they're, they're now abbreviated as Gomburza, Gomez, Burgos, and Zamora. And the, but the most important priest there is really Jose Burgos. And Jose Burgos was a kind of Creole Mestizo, and he was an advocate of the secularization of the parishes. And what now that sounds I, that sounds like a, an, an oxymoron because how can you secularize a parish which is religious? What is meant by secularization in the context of the Catholic Church is you want the parishes to be under the control not of priests from particular orders like the D- Dominicans the Recollects or the Jesuits, you want them to be under the control of priests who are under a bishop or secular priests. So that's what we mean when we say secularization in the church. And Burgos was an advocate of that. Now, how does that become a nationalist struggle? In the Philippines during this time, there were already native priests, but the native priests were not allowed to join the friar orders. In other words, they could not become Dominicans. They could only be secular priests. In other words, priests who reported directly to a bishop. But as a result of historic, but, but uh, by, by virtue of various historical accidents, the parishes in the Philippines were run by friar orders. So that the demand for the secularization of the churches was not just a demand um, 
within canon law, it was a demand that actually effectively challenged the power of the prior orders who were happened to also be Spanish, and then the secular priests were Filipinos. So Burgos was a big advocate of that. And in 1872, you, you, you get a kind of rebellion um, within the military, um, within the Spanish colonial military in the Philippines. Burgos and a couple of other priests are blamed for that. I think they're, you know, they're framed for that and they get executed in 1872. And this, of course, becomes an inspiration for the next generation of Filipino nationalists. In fact, Rizal dedicates his second novel to these three priests who were executed. So after 1872, essentially get a terror in Manila. And most of the kind of liberals of Manila are either jailed, exiled, or are forced to shut up. So from 1872 until roughly the mid 1880s, you get a fallow period in Philippine nationalism. Can we talk a little bit more about how the 1872 uprising and the execution of the three priests, these three priests, influenced what came next? And I, I you know, I'm, I'm, you know, there, you say there was a, a fallow period, but this is obviously a, a sort of formative experience in terms of Filipino nationalism. And I'm, I'm, I just want to try to connect this incident with what we're going to going to see in 1896. Yeah, for for one thing what this does is that it drives out a lot of radicals and liberals out of Manila and out of Cebu. So 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 they become exiles or they start working abroad. That's why the next generation of nationalists a lot of the work they do is done in places like Madrid, Barcelona and Paris. Um, that's that's one thing. The, the second thing it does is that it inspires the next generation of revolutionaries. So, for example, this could be rather direct. So, Pasiano Mercado was very close to Jose Burgos, and he considered Jose Burgos one of his teachers. Now, Pasiano Mercado is the older brother of Jose Rizal. Pasiano Mercado, of course, also changes his name to Rizal when the Rizal name becomes famous. And so there's a kind of direct through line, for instance, from Burgos to Rizal, the next generation of nationalists. Let's set the stage then for 1896. You have, uh, I think there's a, a secret society that emerges to kind of, you know, uh, uh, mm. talk about Philippine nationalism and getting rid of the Spanish and, and you know, kind of, uh, you know, anti-colonialism, broadly speaking. Uh, you have the emergence of Rizal, who, uh, you know, whose execution, I believe, is, is one of the sparks of the, uh, the 1896 mm. revolution. But, uh, you know, kind of, Give us the the last chunk here to to get us up to eighteen ninety six and and lay the lay the table set the table I guess for next time. So as I said, um, what happens is that you have you have a liberal movement in the in Manila that by eighteen seventy two is crushed. So a lot of this liberal movement goes into exile, and it starts to pick up again in the eighteen eighties. Um, the people who are associated with that liberal agitation internationally are, we now call them the Illustrados and the Primus Inter Paris, of course, of that movement is Rizal. And what they were doing in, in, in Spain, particularly in Madrid, was they were advocating for liberal rights in the Philippines and uh, Filipino representation in the Cortes or the Spanish par- Parliament. As I said earlier, those demands fall on deaf ears so that by the late 1880s, early 1890s, many of these illustrados start to become disillusioned. By the early 1890s, Rizal goes back to the Philippines and establishes a movement called La Liga Filipina or the Philippine League. Um, And it is ostensibly a mutual help society, but a lot of people, a lot of historians suspect that he was already trying to set up 
a kind of proto-revolutionary organization. Um, Rizal is arrested for um, anti-colonial activities and the kind of subversive literature he wrote. And so he is, he, he is sent to a far-flung island in Mindanao called the Pitan Island. What happens then to La Liga Filipina is very interesting because La Liga Filipina starts to split. And it is from a radical splinter group of La Liga Filipina headed by a Liga member named Andres Bonifacio that you get the kind of secret organization called the Katipunan or Kataas-taasang Kagalang-galang Katipunan ng mga anak ng bayan or the highest, most exalted association or union or league of the sons of the nation. So even if you look at the name of the group, which we abbreviate as Katipunan, Katipunan is, is actually a Tagalog translation for League or Liga. So this is a radical splinter group of Rizal's original La Liga Filipina, headed by Andres Bonifacio, who was actually a worker for one of the many trading houses in Manila that I discussed a while ago that was kind of part of this British-led um, capital cap- capitalist regionalization of Southeast Asia. Um, and so Bonifacio establishes this radical wing, and the ideology of the Katipunan is still very similar to Rizal's ideology. And in fact, the Katipunan still acknowledges Rizal as its kind of intellectual and emotional uh, and emotional leader, such that if one of the one of the codes, for example, for entering a Katipunan secret meeting, one of the passwords was Rizal. Um, in many of the Katipunan meetings, the, these meetings would be done with a picture of Rizal or a portrait of Rizal. And so even if Rizal was never a part of this organization, he remained the spiritual center of the organization. Um, and so, so that's the secret society of the Katipunan. And the reason why the revolution, uh, 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 the, the reason why of a revolution in, in 1896 is because the secret society is discovered and Bonifacio has no choice but to launch the revolution in 1896. Are there any other sort of uh, kind of preceding events that that trigger the revolution? I mean, anything that in the the immediate kind of um, you know immediately before eighteen ninety six that helps to kind of push things over the line. Well, it is really it is really the growth of the Katipunan that pushes the revolution over the line. So one of the reason one of the reasons why they're discovered is because they're starting to print newspapers. The membership is growing, and of course, if you have if you have a revolution that's growing, it only takes some time. It, it's, a, it's only a matter of time before that revolutionary organization is discovered. But, um, you know, this, the revolution at this period is really just happening in Manila. It spreads much later. And in fact, it's only happening within, you know, a, a, a highly urbanized section of, metropo- of what we now call metropolitan Manila. Why don't we leave that for, for next time to talk about some of the, you know, the ways that the revolution spread to different parts of the Philippines, different segments of Philippine society. I think that's a good topic for next time. Uh, Lisandro Claudio, Assistant Professor, University of California at Berkeley. Uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show. And we're, I'm, I'm really looking forward, and I don't know Danny is as well, uh, really looking forward to, to tackling this history with you moving forward. Thanks very much, Danny.